So what is an adaptogen? Okay, let's talk about that. So an adaptogen is usually some plant or herb that increases the ability to adapt and avoid damage from harmful factors. The Latin word for adaptogen is adaptare, which means to adjust or fit. And the Greek word for gen means produced by or generated by. So an adaptogen generates the ability to adapt or adjust to stress. And if we define stress, stress is something that threatens homeostasis. Another word that I want to define. Homeostasis is this steady state of equilibrium. For example, different fluids have different pHs in your body. You have, you have a normal temperature, 98.6. You have normal pulse rate that should be maybe you know, 72. You have blood pressure, 120 over 80. You have blood sugars, which is usually about 82. So you have all these different um, normal values that are generated by different mechanisms that control homeostasis, which is your internal ability to adapt to the environment, to keep things normal. But when you actually have stress and it pushes some of these factors out of balance, for example, when your stress and cortisol goes up, an adaptogen can bring that back to normal. Same thing with your immune system. If your immune system is suppressed, uh, adaptogens can help bring that to a higher level. And there are four adaptogens that I like the best. Siberian ginseng, Panax ginseng, rhodiola, and my favorite one, ashwagandha, which is also good for inflammatory conditions like arthritis, anxiety, ADHD, decreasing stress, lowers cortisol by 28% in certain studies. And a lot of people are taking this for adrenal stress. So in summary, an adaptogen just basically brings you back to the normal level. All right, thanks for watching. Okay, folks, be honest. Did you know what adaptogen meant? Had you ever heard of it before? You know, I have to admit that I had never heard the word until... We started talking a couple of weeks ago about doing a program on this. And I said, what? what? What on earth is an adaptogen? Well, I didn't even know, I have to confess, that our FLCCC colleague, Dr. Yusuf J.P. Salibi, who's going to be here shortly, had written a book on the subject. You know, there's an awful lot of material to read here at the FLCCC. There's stuff coming out of studies and books and you name it all over the, from all over the world all the time, every minute. So... Um, I'm not up to date on everything. I'm sorry about that. But there is very good reason to talk about adaptogens. And JP, as I said, is going to discuss it. And he's going to correct um, a name of one of the herbs that's mentioned in that video. Because, you know, all over the world, plants are called by different names. So he'll he'll correct that and, and tell you the one that he wants to use. Um and tell you a lot of other good things too. He's going to be here with our own Paul Merrick and Dr. Christina Carmen to explain why our group that started out as doctors, mostly ICU doctors, who were trying to fight COVID at the beginning of this pandemic, you know, why should we be looking now at herbal substances that relieve stress and restore our equilibrium? Well, we are interested in good health, big time. And it doesn't always come to you via prescription. 
So welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton, great creative director of this alliance of medical professionals and their supporters. Our nurses are already online taking questions that you may have about your health. And uh, I will be back asking our team of doctors some of the questions that you put forth that would be really of interest to the entire audience of thousands of people that we always have on. So with that, let's bring in the doctors, Paul and Christina and JP. What's, what is the word problem with that video that we saw? What did he have wrong? Well, um, I mean, the, the use of uh, Siberian ginseng, um, that's an old term. Um, first of all, it's not a ginseng. It's not in the ginseng family. Oh. And the proper name for that particular adaptogen is Eleutherococcus or Eleuthero. So um, that's just a minor correction. It's, it's sort of a, if you're in the weeds on that and um, you're herbalist, that that kind of kind of get you upset, but most, most of those terms are used interchangeably, but I mean, you know, facts are facts and you should call an herb by its real name. Well, take it away. Explain to us the, the importance of this. It sounds interesting. And I just learned, as I was saying before we went on, that I've been taking a, a, a mixture uh, that was uh, recommended to me by a very top nutritionist. And he has studied the um, Chinese as well as the uh, Tibetan uh, and, and all of the different medicines uh, at length and has all kinds of degrees in this. And I have a glaucoma issue with high pressure in the eye. And he said, take this because this could alleviate the pressure. Uh, and perhaps make it so that while the pressure may still be high, you won't damage the optic nerve, which is the key. You don't want that optic nerve to be crushed by this high pressure. And the doctors that have been treating the glaucoma have been stunned that for the long time that the pressure was high, the optic nerve hasn't been damaged at all. And they couldn't quite figure it out. And so just the other day, I looked at the bottle and it has several of the things that are your top um, adaptogens in it. I had no idea. So thank you. Thank you. Tell us more. Well, let, let me open up by saying, let's define it. And uh, the video we, we saw certainly uh, hit some, you know, main key points, but the adaptogen, the term, I mean, these herbs have been used for thousands and thousands of years in the Ayurvedic uh, area in Chinese medicine, Tibetan medicine, indigenous people use these herbs, but they were actually classified and given that name uh, in the 1940s. Actually, 1947, there was a toxicologist that was working in the Soviet Union named Nikolai V. Lazarov. And he was studying mostly like rhodiola rosea, which grows up in the in that part of Russia. Um, and he came up with this term adaptogen. Um, and uh, he's considered the father father of modern day adaptogen research. And um, of course, a lot of that early research was it was written in Russian, and you know, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, it kind of was translated and moved westward, but. Where did the stress? I mean, it's it, they're they're used to treat stress. So um, back around the same time, one of his contemporaries, 
um, in a Western uh, nation was uh, Hans Seeley. So Dr. Seeley was working with stress and he came up with this thing called GAS, Generalized Adaptive Syndrome or the stress theory. And there are three components. There was the alarm phase, there was the uh, resistance phase, and then the exhaustion phase. Once you couldn't handle your stress, you lapsed into exhaustion. And a lot of people associate that with stress, lack of good sleep, fatigue, all that. And adaptogens came about as an answer to that to help people overcome that stress. I'm going to let uh, Christina talk a little bit about some of her favorites and maybe we can pull up some slides. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just a, another little word on stress. So I think to define stress is really important. Um, you know, it's a used a word that's used very interchangeably within our society, but actually what it is physically in our body is a disturbance in an individual's homostatus. So that your disturbance in balance and the benefit of adaptogens uh, there's many different types, so it's really important to distinguish which one you're using and why um, can really support the body to adapt to these stressors. Um, so yeah, that's that's my definitely uh, something that I would use in, in my practice um, with patients. I love using adaptogens, but again, it's really important, and I hope this webinar will um, showcase and highlight um, its uses and in which kind of setting we can use um, obviously with particular focus on ashwagandha because it's so talked about um, and its uses are so widespread. Right. So there's three, 400 herbs that are used medicinally. Um, and there are actually three criteria to define what an adaptogen herb is. Uh, and these were set up by Lazarov. He kind of defined it. There's three things that have to be met to be called an adaptogen. One is that it cannot cause any kind of toxicity. Uh, it cannot cause a disorder of any physiological manner or function. Number two, it has to increase the body's resistance to stress by a wide mechanism of action, not one single thing, but many different things. And what I think is the third and most unusual aspect of an herb that becomes known as an adaptogen is its ability to normalize or reach homeostasis. So let me give you an example. Let's say we have a patient who has high blood sugar and we decide to give them a particular adaptogen, let's say holy basil. So we give them holy basil and their sugars come down to a more normal level. Let's take a second patient. Let's say they have low blood sugar and we give them the same dose of the same adaptogen and it will bring their sugar up to a normal level. So it has this equalizing effect, whether we're talking about blood pressure, cortisol levels, uh, sugar levels, things like that. Wouldn't you agree, Christina? Absolutely, 100%. And that's the beauty of, of the way they work within the body. Yeah. So the classification, when I wrote my book in 2006, which is a little bit dated, I covered three adaptogens, Eleuthero, uh, Rhodiola rosea, um, and also one called Jagulan, uh, which is more unusual. Amachiguru is what the Japanese call it. And um, I, at that time, there were maybe 24 to 25 known adaptogens. Now, if you look around, you can, you can Google it and say, well, how many adaptogens are there? Well, there are probably about 28 that have been confirmed or recognized. 
but some some authors will say you know 34 and as many as 70 so they get sometimes reclassified into primary adaptogens and lesser adaptogens and i'm going to read off a list of what we know as the eight primary um, adaptogens and that's panax ginseng ashwagandha there's our one of our favorite herbs that we talk about a lot shisandra reishi which is a mushroom astragalus licorice root cordyceps senescens which is another um, mushroom of interesting qualities, and if we have time, we'll talk about that, and go to cola. Now, all the others would be considered um, lesser adaptogens, uh, not to take away from them, but they're, you know, they're, they may be not as powerful or not used primarily in um, medicinal, for medicinal purposes. I'll just add to that, actually, they, those, the lesser known ones or the lesser adaptogens might be used in conjunction with others. So they'll be paired together in order to lift, um, again, the, the, the clinical picture that they're being used in. Um, so they, they would work really well, um, kind of paired with others. Yeah. And I, Westerners, Western medicine practitioners, we like to use single agents one at a time, kind of like how we use our medicines. You prescribe X for Y. You know, so we prescribe rhodiola, rosea, we prescribe eleuthero, uh, whereas in Chinese medicine, it's rare that they prescribe one by itself. They have patents that contain three, five, seven. So sometimes you'll have an herbal preparation that has multiple adaptogens that are used to help control or balance, let's say, the HPA axis, the hormone axis. And this really has a lot to do with um, studying the person. So it will be very much the, the prescription, shall we say, in Eastern medicine comes down to the constituents of the person, the constitution of the person, uh, whether they're energetic and their vital force is there. Uh, someone who might be very, very ill, you have to tread very slowly and lightly and you only use the types of adaptogens that can lift the energy of the person, not one that's already really very strong that might actually suppress. So this is the approach. It's slightly different to maybe how we would look at it in the West. Um, so that's a really important one. It's a very personalized uh, prescription, shall we say, on how we would treat. Right. So um, Christina, do you wanna bring up the slides and we can talk about ashwagandha and then dive in a little deeper? Yeah, here we go. So I actually just noticed a couple of questions in the Q&A on, um, on ashwagandha in particular that I just wanted to highlight. And one of them is, um, it's actually considered a nightshade. So with, I don't know if, if again, nightshade uh, vegetables can be a little bit contentious with some people that are very sensitive. So ashwagandha in that case might not be the best choice as far as an adaptogen is concerned. Um, there are others that you can use that would give you a very similar results. So this is one to one to look at. I have had in clinical practice patients that are okay with um, taking ashwagandha and they're still sensitive with nightshade. So it really is a very personal and it depends on the person in the case. Um, you know, our, our, these are sort of anti-nutrients as we call them, but anti-nutrients are actually there uh, to protect, protect the plant and obviously some, some uh, individuals might be a little bit more sensitive to 
the, how we process and how we digest that. A lot of that comes down to a how you're preparing it, so the cooking me method, and also the terrain of that human being. So maybe there's some imbalance already within the body that you're not able to tolerate certain foods. And I'm not saying that you'll you'll you can fix that and you'll be okay. Some people are just generally more sensitive, but we again have to look at the whole person and understand why this might not be working for them and um, maybe dig a little deeper to see if there is some imbalance elsewhere that's causing these sensitivities. Right. So the Latin for ashwagandha is Withenia somnifera. So somnifera from, from like somnolence or from sleepiness. So when I prescribe this herb and I prescribe quite a bit of it, it's got applications with when it's uh, pertaining to long COVID and also for the thyroid. Um, it's one of several herbs that are used in conjunction with like selenium and iodine and iron and magnesium to help with thyroid function, especially if somebody's at the point where they need a little help, but they don't need to go on thyroid prescription medicine or hormone replacement. So ashwagandha is a pro-thyroid type um, botanical, whereas things like um, um, L-carnitine and frankincense, Boswellia serrata, for example, may suppress the thyroid function. But I also dose it in the evening because of its ability to help enhance sleep. You can dose it twice a day. You can dose it in the morning, but I start out usually in the evening. And if uh, that helps sleep, great. Then we'll use it as a also a sleep aid. You want to go to the uh, next slide? Christina, do you want to? Yeah. This slide. yeah. So clinical uses of ashwagandha. Now it's a very uh, well studied uh, herb and adaptogen um, and it has lots of different clinical applications. The main ones that we look at um, are its use in stress and anxiety because actually the action of ashwagandha is very calming and very soothing. So it has a real uh, regulatory effect from that perspective. It can be uh, looked at in cases of depression, and certainly we would look at an, an insomnia. So those one, these would be the main ones. Now I'll take it further and, and follow up with Dr. Salibi's um, mention of the thyroid. It can very, very uh, be very useful in these, in these cases where there's maybe a subclinical uh, thyroid picture where... Um, you know, we're not going down the medication route. We wanted to see what we can do, again, from an adaptogenic perspective, but also maybe from a herbal and nutraceutical perspective to lift that status. I would say that maybe it's not something that I would use if there's a hyperthyroidism picture. This is very much hypo. Um, there are other herbs that we would use in those cases, but that's one that we would use. And I would also look at it potentially in... Um, uh, I do a lot of work with uh, perimenopausal and hormonal women and, and when there's dysregulation in our in our cycles leading up to menopause and then beyond. Um, and this might be a herb um, that I would look at in those in those scenarios, potentially depending on the patient's um, symptoms, maybe not so much with hot flashes, but if there is a lot of anxiety and stress related to the changes in the hormones, this might be a herb that I would look at in that case. Yeah. So um, in support, when, when we say adaptogens support, including ashwagandha, they support the adrenal and the hormone uh, axes or functions. They also help eliminate certain toxins and metabolic byproducts. Uh, they also help with oxygen utilization. 
they uh, make oxygen uh, utilization more efficient. They improve um, regulation of the body's natural rhythms, whether that's sleep rhythms or brain, brain waves or concentration, et cetera. And we have to know, as, as Christina mentioned, that each adaptogen has its unique and, and distinctive properties and also has to be uh, paired up with, um, like you pair up a good wine with a fish or meat dish, you pair up a good adaptogen with that patient's needs. And, and there are tests that you can do, biomarkers that you can observe to, to make sure that whatever you're selecting as an adaptogen is working in that patient's favor. Interestingly, as well with ashwagandha, there's some um, some new research and some studies coming out on its use in fertility. So that's uh, sometimes a, a big subject, maybe a webinar just on its own, but can be used in those cases for both male and female. Um, in in Ayurvedic medicine, in particular, it's used in men that have low sperm count. Again, in conjunction with other herbs and with other um, adaptogens. Um, it can also be used uh, in cases of asthma. Um, so it's a it's a it's a really quite a multifaceted uh, adaptogenic herb and can be used in lots of cases. Lots of lots of interesting research coming out now. Um, another one actually to note. Um, I just read recently a paper on it on um, on, on on muscle performance and muscle recovery. Uh, for those that are extreme athletes or endurance athletes, there's a lot of uh, new research coming out for the use of ashwagandha in those cases, again, alongside other interventions, but uh, very much studied now for muscle performance. Right. Paul, um, you had mentioned before the show started that you had come across a paper with some uh, concerns or warnings about ashwagandha. Do you want to fill us in on that a bit? So first, what I was going to say is that surprisingly, there's a lot of lot of data on uh, ashwagandha. It's been quite thoroughly studied. There are many randomized controlled trials. So you know the the, the ashwagandha has been subject to you know pretty vigorous scientific scrutiny. And they you know and the, there's even a meta analysis which included. 12 randomized controlled trials and show quite convincingly that um, ashwagandha decreases the level of stress significantly, decreases anxiety, and is really good for insomnia. So I, I think that, you know, for people, I mean, because it sounds a little bit too good to be true, looking at all the biological properties of this herb. But if you actually look at the scientific data, it actually is supported in you know peer-reviewed publications. It's generally very safe. Um, the, so what, what actually happened today is I came across a report of liver, um, liver disease associated with, with ashwagandha. It was a report of five cases of cholestatic jaundice. Um, so that, that is somewhat of a caution, particularly in someone with underlying liver disease. But I think so many people take ashwagandha that, you know, it, it's, it's probably much safer than um, aspirin or Tylenol. So one has to kind of keep it in perspective. The right. question I would have for you is, 
you and Dr. Carmen is, you know, should people order, because you can buy this online, you know, should they buy this online or should they get it through, you know, a physician who understands what they're prescribing? Right. Well, I think a cautionary note is, you know, the do-it-yourselfers can get in trouble. Um, they can overtake things or put things in the wrong combination or take combination uh, preparations and there's redundancy that can cause toxicity. So it's best if you have issues with fatigue or insomnia, just like you would go to a regular doctor and he would prescribe a sleeping pill. I think you would go to your naturopathic doctor or functional medicine integrative practitioner to get information and an, a better understanding and the proper dosing. To grab a bottle of something like ashwagandha or curcumin, let's say off the shelf, there was an issue with curcumin or turmeric where there was lead toxicity because the uh, manufacturers in Bangladesh wanted a brighter yellow compound, so they put lead in it. So if you're unaware of these kind of things, uh, you could get in trouble and do yourself more harm than good. So there are some manufacturers, they're considered pharmaceutical grade, and uh, most practitioners like Christina and myself know who they are, and we kind of guide our patients towards those brands because we're assured that they're high quality. And then we can prescribe doses and titration. I'm all of, of the mindset of, you know, you start with a low dose and then you escalate, uh, start low and go slow and titrate up for the effect you want. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, the question is, you know, not, not all patients have access to clinicians like yourself. So is there a big downside if someone is really stressed and have and has anxiety and insomnia, you know, getting it over the counter, um, you know, high grade quality ashwagandha? Yeah, I mean, you have to do your research. Um, you know, if you don't have access to in-person uh, specialty care, um, you know, you, you just find find a good book that's on herbal medicine and uh, make sure you vet it out and from some legitimate authors uh, or have some good reviews on that book and then do your own homework. Um, now that we all have Google in front of us, you know, we all consult with Dr. Google. So, um, but there's good and bad information out there on the internet. So you yeah. have to just- Because I mean, ashwagandha seems to be very effective. I mean, the study, you know, the published studies show it highly effective in reducing stress and improving sleep with, you know, a very favorable side effect profile. So it, it seems like it, it would be something worthwhile trying. Absolutely. Yep. You just have to be careful in the products you pick, you know. Is there um, any um, combination with ashwagandha which you would be hesitant to use or recommend against? So I will, I'll, I'll add to that actually. Um, so ashwagandha has an action where it actually can increase iron. So in cases or in patients that maybe have hemochromatosis or excess iron, I would be very cautious to use um, ashwagandha. But generally safe sort of dosages are anywhere from 400 to 500 milligrams per capsule. Um, and then 
I would just advise then from there to see how many times a day you take that based on, again, what's going on. Now, there's also a couple of different ways that you can take ashwagandha. You can take it in a tincture form. So this would mean that you would go to a herbalist um, that would prepare something for you. Hopefully a medical herbalist that obviously is vetted and is careful with their preparations. And you can, you can dose that way. This is very quite, quite a lot stronger. So you take a lot less. Um, and you know, you again, a titrate, so very slowly and increase, increase from there. You can also create like a concoction in, in Ayurvedic medicine, they'll use ashwagandha almost like a milk, like a, like, um, uh, like a warm drink almost. Um, and you can, you can use it from this perspective and it's used, the dry root is actually used in these cases. Um, to create this, you seep it for an for half an hour. There's a whole process on how to create, it, but you can um, you can get good quality ashwagandha like this. You just again have to do your research online. And similarly with the supplements, taking in the supplement form, it's highly possible to um, get very good quality products. Uh, just again, do your research where you're where you're you know who are your sources, where are you getting it from. Most nutraceutical companies will have amazing clinical teams that you can call them. Um, and ask them what are the you know what is the blend what is what is anything added in there that you may or may have an, may or may not have an issue with as well so definitely if you're curious and you have something complex going on and it's not in your remit to go see a specialist then definitely speak to the clinical teams at these supplement companies because they're usually they're usually quite good yeah do you want to um, talk about some particular adaptogens? Um, like I'll mention maca. So for a lot of the male patients who are experiencing erectile dysfunction or low levels of, um, you know, testosterone, maca root seems to work. It helps with libido. Um, you know, holy basil or tulsi, known as tulsi, is another popular adaptogen that helps on a number of levels. And uh, bacopa is one that's uh, it's been studied with for memory, for cognitive function. So folks that maybe are on a natural regimen for early onset or early parts of any kind of dementia, Alzheimer's or even a Parkinson's dementia, Bacopa is an adaptogen that's helpful. Uh, but there's so many. I use something called Fotai, uh, which is a Chinese name for polygonum. Polygonum is the Latin name. It's also known as, as resveratrol uh, is the main ingredient in that. And I use that in um, a lot of my patients when they have a, a Herxheimer reaction, if they're on medication or herbals for the treatment of uh, tick-borne illness, sometimes the die-off can cause a cytokine storm and this kind of quells it. So I like that adaptogen. I use that a lot in my practice. Mm. I'll add actually to the maca, if I can go back to that one. Um, maca is something that I use a lot in my practice. Um, and actually the interesting thing with maca is not all maca is the same. So there's, I think, 13 different phenotypes of maca. So it really mm -hmm. depends on the one that you're using and different colors. And also how it's grown, where it's grown, what altitude it's grown in is really, really important as well. So again, not all maca is the same. And in some cases, maca can really enhance something. And in other cases, it actually can make things worse. So it really depends on how and what you're using it for. 
Um, so it's definitely one that I would I would advise if it's in your remit to speak to a clinician that has experience with using these types of herbs in particular and what you're using it for, um, because you don't want to harm, you want to make better. It's super, super yeah. powerful um, and incredibly, incredibly useful, but in the right circumstances. Um, and similarly with like Pax Ginseng, for example, I, I use that again, very, very um, uh, often in my practice. But again, what are you using it for? How are you using it for? Are you using red or white ginseng? And what is the picture? Is it to lower blood pressure? Is it to uh, support kidney function? Is it to um, enhance the immune system if there are some immuno uh, irregularities there? So really looking at it from obviously why and for what context you're using using these adaptogens for. But yes, very powerful, very right. useful. And you could say the a warning with uh, licorice root so you have the licorice root um, can affect your electrolytes. Um, so, you know, they, some of these adaptogens are meant to use, be used for very short periods of time. Um, licorice root, I use a lot with uh, some salted water for folks with POTS. It seems to be very effective, but you got to watch the potassium and, and some of the other electrolytes. You may notice on this list of adaptogens, several mushrooms the Reiki mushroom, uh, the shiitake, uh, these mushrooms have certain defractions or beta-glucans that are part of it that help with the immune system. One in particular I like, and I use a lot with my Lyme patients, is cordyceps senescence. And not only is it a great herbal adaptogen, uh, the Chinese track and field team was using a liquid form when they competed in a, uh, Olympics a few years ago and won a lot of uh, first place finishes. And it was attributed to that adaptogen, which is not a banned substance. It was allowed in the Olympics, uh, but they were seen consuming large quantities of that. Uh, the cordyceps is an interesting, it's actually a mushroom that grows out of the head of a caterpillar. So the spore infects the caterpillar as it's in the earth, in the ground, and it changes its behavior so it makes it rise up to within an inch or so from the surface of the ground. And then it sprouts this stalk uh, out of its head. And if you see them, if you Google uh, cordyceps in essence, you'll usually see a picture of the dried out caterpillar with this mushroom. So the caterpillar is not consumed. It's only the mushroom part. And it, it has a number of interesting effects. They've studied it on uh, beta endorphins in the brain. It's something called DAF and Fox hand box O uh, transcription factor. These are all things that uh, have their mechanisms of action. Um, also heat shock proteins or JNK1s are involved and uh, it also can affect nitric oxide. So a lot of the adaptogens have similar effects physiologically in the human body. Um, but um, I particularly find cordyceps very... Um, uh, very interesting to use, and a combination of cordyceps and reishi, something called cordyce, which I it's a two mushroom adaptogen preparation I use uh, in a tincture form to ramp up my patient's immune system to fight off um, chronic um, infectious diseases. I think I'll add one more one more point here um, when it comes to adaptogens and these herbs. Um, and maybe I'm being a little bit like a bit out there, a bit woo woo, but that's me. Um, 
they have energetic properties. So the, the way that they're studied is based on the action or what it will do in the body. So they're all slightly different. Yes, they're adaptogens. They will support the body through stress, um, either through a regulatory effect or a calming effect or, or a stimulating effect rather, um, but they still have an energetic property. And the way that they're studied is, let's say ashwagandha, for example, its taste is bitter. So it goes by taste and by the action in the body. So it's warming and it's dry. Whereas um, uh, rhodiola might be dry and dry and dry and sweet taste. So very, again, how you would use it and what you would use it. I'll give you an example. I had a patient not long ago that uh, was using rhodiola, like just bucket loads. And she was going to go see uh, an eye doctor because she's like, my eyes are so dry so 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 dry cannot cannot I don't nothing I can do can support that my skin's dried my eyes dried everything's just gone dry what's going on with me and rhodiola look at the action of rhodiola it's drying it will dry so again it's really important to to understand again how these herbs they're very very powerful incredibly powerful um and so wonderful so I'm not trying to to push anyone away from that but please just know why and how you're using it mm -hmm. and they do have they do have this sort of energetic constituents some are more moist some are more cooling so you're using it in those clinical settings maybe you need to cool the body if you're having hot fleshy kind of symptoms or um you know there's a or in those cases of um like in kidney issues for example we would use uh, we would look at ginseng potentially to really support that clearing because it's a it's a, a moist it's a hydrating kind of herb or adaptogen so again it's it there's a lot to it there's a lot more to it than um, I think we could probably fit in the webinar it's a whole uh, a, a whole very interesting realm of uses um, and there's certainly so many beautiful books out there that would give you information on how to um, on if you want to dive a little bit deeper on certainly the energetic um, aspects of it and what they would use in a clinical kind of setting. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I think in the East, they tend to use, they rot rotate them. Uh, in my book, I talk about, um, you know, three to four months, and then you rotate. And again, I use them in combination, I, I use a preparation that has eight different adaptogens in one, com you know, in one compounded or formula, formula. Uh, and but you have to take like three to four capsules twice a day uh, for most effect. But uh, after about three or four months, I tend to rotate them on and off. Um, it's just uh, this kind of an Eastern sort of philosophy versus the West. We put people on one thing and keep them on it for maybe too long. <laughs> and it's it's in naturopathic medicine uh, when you over supplement in any supplement it can be as suppressive as it can be supportive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really important to look at it like, why am I taking this? What is it trying, what is it trying to achieve? And even with this, I would say even with medication, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit naughty here, but even with medication, ask how long you have to be on this for. What mm -hmm. is the, what is the end game? What is the result? Um, because you're not meant to be on it. Uh, indefinitely you're meant to cycle these you're meant to support the body through something so because the body knows what to do to heal we're just giving it the tools in order to do it and then ultimately we we would be with we with without because we've supported the body through the difficulty um 
So yeah, that maybe might would be very much my approach. And even with regular supplements, I'm sort of like, you're on for six days and then take a rest and then on and then recycle them or you take a break and then start again because you want you want to allow the body some space to do what it innately knows how to do mm-hmm. doctors i've got to jump in here because i've got a lot of questions from the audience but i've got one from me and that is your medical doctors of the the sort that we're accustomed to in western medicine how did you get onto these other medicines that they're not advertised by pharma and they're, they're out there. They've been used for generations, centuries in some cases. How did you get excited and interested in this? So I'm going to be a bit naughty and jump in and say, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a naturopathic doctor. So naturopathically okay. trained. And I studied herbal medicine, Ayurvedic and Asian or Eastern medicine. So uh, Chinese medicine, so very, and mycotherapy. So medicinal mushrooms. So that's very much my sort of area and route. Um, I will leave it to Dr. Merrick and to Dr. Salibi to talk about the medical interventions. Obviously, we study that in um, in naturopathic medicine, but my experience doesn't go as 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 in depth as as my two colleagues here. So um, you but- saw this in the beginning as something that you wanted to go into. Hundred percent, hundred percent. For me, it was always about how can I allow the body a holistic approach. Um, and holism means, can we support all areas of the life? It's not just about taking an adaptogen. It's about looking at what else is going on here. What's happening from a lifestyle, from a movement, from, uh, what are you feeding your body? So nutritional therapy is huge. You know, what are you nourishing your body and your soul with? These are really, really important things to look at rather than just running out and taking a, taking an adaptogenic herb because you're a bit stressed. You know, why do you have insomnia? Is it not just the ashwagandha that we need to look at? Are you also maybe nutrient depleted? Is there a magnesium picture going on here? Is there, are you eating too late in the day? And that's actually causing some issues as far as blood sugar regulation. You know, or maybe some intermittent fasting is something. I know Dr. Merrick is a big proponent of that as am I. So maybe that's something that we need to look at. So it's very much holistic, whole person. And that's always been my, my route, uh, full force down that way. JP, how about you? Where did you get into this? How did you do it? You know, I was trained in one of the oldest medical schools in the United States, very traditional mainstream allopathic medicine. And my first career, almost 15 to 20 years was in emergency medicine. And um, it was this daily grind of seeing chronically ill people coming in and out like a revolving door in my emergency room. And, And the polypharmacy, the number of medications they were on. So I was very critical about the use of too many meds and their side effects. And then you need a medication for the other medication for the side effects. And so I, 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 I took a path in the, in the mid 1990s, I developed a curriculum and I followed it and it was, it led me down a path into more integrative holistic medicine where I studied herbs and botanicals and it's kind of taken over my practice. I have a very short list of what I consider good medications, few side effects and huge benefits, but I don't overprescribe, you know, prescription medications. I tend to lean on a lot of herbal dietary supplements, minerals, adaptogenic herbs. Um, but you know, it everyone's different. Sometimes they work great for folks, and sometimes they don't. And you have to kind of rely. You have to fall back on some more powerful prescriptive um, medications. But it was always funny to me that 
when a patient of mine would go see their family doctor and tell them they were on three different herbs and, you know, these dietary supplements, and they would say, well, gosh, they don't work. They don't work. But oh, don't take them because of the side effects. Well, obviously, they're doing something right. If they're going to provide an untoward side effect, then they're doing something, but they would never give them any credit for doing any good. It was always evil. And that's, that's, being spoken out of ignorance. They just they didn't take the time to study. I'll tell you, my curriculum in medical school on herbology was zero, zero minutes. I only had one hour of nutritional medicine education in four years of medical school, and, and so even less with herbal medicine. I, I didn't learn it in medical school or residency. I had to wait till I was out on my own and uh, had an interest and passion for it uh, and explored it. And it's very interesting. It's fascinating, fascinating uh, subject matter. The JP, there are thousands of patients who are on SSRIs or antidepressants. Do you think it, an adaptogen added to an SSRI would be of benefit to a patient, you know, particularly someone with anxiety and stress? Absolutely. I, I wean people off. So I get people in my clinic who want to get off medicines or who are having adverse side effects against SSRIs, SNRIs, things like Cymbalta and Paxil are terrible drugs to get people. You have to wean people off. It can take six months to wean somebody off of Cymbalta. If you do it too quickly, they can have a seizure. Um, so I'm using other adaptogenic herbs, gentle, slowly titrating up some that are compatible with and won't have any untoward effect as I wean them off, like St. John's wort, for example, um, and also some, um, some amino acids, like thiamine. I'm going to be writing a paper sh shortly on B1, thiamine in higher doses, 250, 100 to 250 milligrams as an anxiolytic drug to keep people off their Valium and Xanax. So um, there are things you can substitute. A lot of them are herbals. We're finding out that the SSRIs aren't all that they were promised in the medical literature. And I think you're, Paul, you're aware of that more than anyone else probably in the room uh, as you kind of uh, are scrutinizing what's been published in the last 50 years. So um, you, we, don't, we don't know if we can trust some of the published studies. So we have to look for alternatives. And these herbs have been around. They're organic. They're natural. Um, they've been amongst us for millennia, um, not a recently discovered or created synthetic drug, which we don't know what they're doing with the receptors, you know, exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I wean people off of prescription drugs uh, when I can, and I substitute appropriate herbals. We have a question from Laura Emerson who on this, she says, does anyone on the panel know if American medical schools with, uh, with culinary medicine departments like Duke and Stanford universities are teaching their students about these plant products? Are they studying them or writing about them in journals? I have I no know. idea. Yeah. I don't know. I hope so, though. My goodness, I yeah. certainly hope so. I that really would be a, we need a we need a change. Yeah, we do. That would be a a great segue using medicine as uh, food as your medicine, as Hippocrates said, and that would be a great segue in bringing 
foods that are medicines and then botanicals and herbals and adaptogens into the top of mind in our very impressionable young doctors to be. That would be great. We're going to be talking more about food and health coming up. Uh, but anyway, let's go back to uh, to this. We have a question from Ponder Blanchard wants to know, a patient with long COVID is having early morning cortisol elevations, causing severe anxiety. Does ashwagandha decrease cortisol levels? Potentially, um, like that's the definition. Uh, the third point in the three-point definition of an adaptogen is to reach homeostasis. So if you have a high cortisol level, which is causing anxiety and possibly insomnia and possibly suppressing other hormones that are necessary for the rest of your day, ashwagandha or another adaptogen might be very helpful in reducing that. There are other mechanisms, other things we do to reduce high cortisol levels, the use of DHEA, the use of phosphatidylserine, um, and sometimes melatonin. Um, you know, to help at nighttime, um, high cortisol levels. But yeah, I mean, um, again, if somebody has too low, it can raise it. And if it's too high, it can lower it to a more homeostatic, uh, average, normal level. Yeah. And the research actually is pretty good. It shows, you know, the reduction in the level of stress, reduction in anxiety, and that's associated with, if you measure early morning cortisol, a pretty significant reduction of cortisol, so that these, these, uh, these herbs do have physiological effects. We have a question from Cliffy uh, McComer who says, ashwagandha is high in oxalate. Uh, a lot of people have to watch out for oxalate. What do you all think of that? Would you use it in those cases? Uh -huh. Similar um, to what I mentioned earlier about the nightshade. So it's the same uh, nightshade vegetables or nightshade group of vegetables are uh, higher in oxalate. So again, just coming back to what I said earlier, if you are a more sensitive individual when it comes to the oxalate type foods and just watch out with ash ashwagandha, um, it doesn't mean that you can't take it though. So I think, again, it's very much a multifaceted approach when it comes to these anti-nutrients. Um, and I can do a webinar just on anti-nutrients because I've studied it very extensively when we look at how the action of the body, it's not necessarily a no, it's also looking at maybe what else is going on in the body and why you're reacting to it. Why is your body reacting to it the same way as maybe a plant would be reacting to these anti-nutrients? These, these are foods that are meant to be in our diets. They're there for a reason. And there's so much literature around uh, and it's maybe what we can agree most on maybe is that we do actually need to eat lots of vegetables, fruits and vegetables in order to support healthy microbiome, digestion, you know, phytonutrients, phytochemicals, all of these things we need in our bodies. Now, there are obviously these fruits and vegetables that fall into these, um, these anti-nutrient groups that can cause some issues with some people. But again, just looking at why is that happening and dig a little deeper, I would say, when it comes to those things. But as a little caveat, if you are more sensitive to it, yes, it's a nightshade, which is an oxalate. Right. And with oxalates, they can act as inflammatory. They can cause the creation of renal calculi. Um, you should avoid, uh, if you have kidney, calcium kidney stones, you should avoid some ox, oxalate, high oxalate foods like almonds and uh, rutab 
rhubarb and things like that. However, the caveat is, is if you take it with a little calcium, whether you take it with a calcium supplement or a glass of milk, if you toler tolerate dairy or a piece of cheese, the calcium binds with the oxalate and you sometimes can feel that grittiness on your tongue if you take them in combination and that uh, that doesn't allow it to be absorbed. So you kind of um, excrete it in your, in your poop, um, if you will. Um, so that's one little trick you can do. Food, food pairing matters massively when it comes to anti-nutrients and food preparation. How are you cooking it and breaking down those anti-nutrients so that your body can digest it a little bit more optimally? Okay, here's a question about rhodiola. Mark uh, Schmudlock wants to know, how long can rhodiola be taken before a break should be given? You mentioned breaks are important. Right. So that was one of the three I wrote about. And actually on the cover of my book, I actually, I actually drew and, and, and um, drew the artwork for rhodiola rosea. I kind of learned that from Dr. Bean about his art history. So <laughs> I did that back then. Um, I mean, this is an herb that is found on the high plateau in, in Russia and in certain parts of China and Asia. Um, it was used in the cosmonaut program pretty heavily. Dr. Lazaroff was actually studying and researching certain adaptogens for use in their athletic program as non-IOC banned substances to help with athletic ergonomic aids as well as their cosmonaut program. So one of the most stressful occupations in the planet or outside the planet, I should is being an astronaut or cosmonaut, constantly being bombarded by radioact uh, radioactive rays and cosmic rays and gamma rays. And you know, zero gravity is very stressful on the body. Uh, you can lose muscle and bone readily. And the, the closed spaces for prolonged periods of time, I understand, uh, one of the longest stays in space was over 400 days by a cosmonaut. And recently, an American stayed um, over, over a year, a little bit over a year recently, just came back to Earth. Those are very stressful events. And they were using not only rhodiola, but other adaptogens in their cosmonaut program. But like I said, I don't think anything was meant to be consumed ongoing. Um, so you do three, four months and do a rotation. You can pulse it go on it for a couple of months and take a month off break. One exception might be Jagulan or Chiguru, which is what the Japanese call it. It's a, a, a vine that grows very quickly about, I think it grows about an inch every day. And it was obscure because it was up in the Northern part of China. And when the Mongols invaded China, the, the, the emperor took all his, chefs and, and herbalists, and they went to the South and they took this big book of herbs. And unfortunately, um, uh, Jagulan was sort of left out. So it was discovered later and it grows in China and Thailand. Some of the best comes out of Thailand. It's steeped as a tea. Um, I have um, a whole bunch of the, the loose leaf teas and I occasionally brew it with other teas um, in a concoction of herbal tea. But in some of the blue zones where people live into the to be 100, 100 plus years old, you'll see that they consume the Jagulin tea up to four to eight times a day. Um, and that's ongoing. Okay. Um, we have another, a Rumble viewer wants to know do adaptogens work on cholesterol? 
Yeah, um, to some degree they can, um, but it begs the question, if you're going to ask about cholesterol, we need to we need to really dig deep and determine if in fact we're not over-treating dyslipidemia. Um, so, you know, today I had a patient, her total cholesterol was over 300. However, her HDL, the good cholesterol was 115. So there's no way on earth I would ever put her on a statin drug or any lipid lowering agent for that matter. Her ratios, her total cholesterol to HDL ratio was fantastic. Her APOBs and APOA1 ratios were great. So I patted her on the back and I said, you can have more bacon um, <laughs> and you'd stay away from those darn statins. So yeah, um, you know, there are other things that can cause um, elevation of cholesterol, not only diet, but also thyroid has an impact. And then of course the, you know, your genetics, your family traits can have an effect, but we need to kind of scrutinize uh, cholesterol. I think, Paul, this is a shout out to you to dive deep into use of- Yeah, I think people worry too yeah. much about cholesterol. Cholesterol, yeah. really, unless you have familial hypercholesterolemia, you know, I think people people fret too much about their cholesterol level. It's not the cholesterol which causes, um, you know, heart disease. It's the insulin resistance and it's the inflammation. So I think people- are obsessed by this cholesterol scam. Mm -hmm. All yeah, right. I think the marketing has been great by pharma and uh, the media about getting us all worried about our cholesterol. I'm almost at the point where I don't really check it that often on my patients. We have a question from Constance Banks about would ashwagandha be safe in pregnancy and lactation, especially for subclinical hypothyroidism? I'm going to let you take that one. So it's not studied uh, in pregnancy, uh, in lactation, for obvious, re obvious reasons. However, in Ayurvedic medicine in India, uh, ashwagandha milk is given to pregnant mothers. And there, I mean, for years and years and years, and there has never been any issue as far as, um, you know, fetal growth or anything like that. So now I'm, again, this taking this with a grain of salt, please. I would just be very cautious and careful because it isn't studied, but it's years of uses in these cases suggest that potentially it would be okay. Not in a supplement form, but as a milk. So you're taking low, lower doses. Now, in the case of subclinical hypothyroidism, I would probably look at other things that we could do um, rather than maybe using ashwagandha. So how can we support you? Um, through pregnancy and lactation where you're still supporting, obviously, um, baby, baby, baby and mom, um, but also supporting what's going on from a hypothyroidism perspective. So diet plays a really big role here um, and maybe looking at more sort of protective, protective nutrients um, that are a little well better studied um, when it comes to pregnancy and lactation. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, I'd love to get a couple more of these in here. Do you have time? Can you stay on yeah. a little bit more? Yeah. Great. Uh, Rebecca Schultz says, is there any concern of ashwagandha and autoimmunity? Hmm. Well, um, I'll, I'll jump in because I, I don't just use herbals by themselves one, one at a time. I use them in combination. And I also pair them up very often with low-dose naltrexone. So in my opinion, low-dose naltrexone is like the magic bullet for autoimmune disease. It's not going to work for everybody. There's probably 
a third of the people where it doesn't work that great, a third where it works pretty good, and the other third, it works phenomenally. But I can pair that up with certain botanicals, including adaptogen herbs, not only ashwagandha, but others, and also peptides. So there's some healing peptides that I also use. And it's a combination thing. It's a smorgasbord of different herbals and natural agents and dietary supplements. Likewise, Frank, look at that. I'm so sorry, I've jumped in there as well, but uh, I massively look at gut health and digestion when it comes to any kind of autoimmune picture. That would Great. be my first ones to look at, actually. Frank Berger says, is it okay to take both ashwagandha and melatonin at bedtime? In general, what is the ideal timing for taking adaptogens? Well, uh, there's no contradiction to taking um ashwagandha and melatonin together at not right before bedtime. And again, I like to dose my ashwagandha in the evening uh, versus in the morning, but um, some botanicals are very, um, you know, easily dosed. Some have to be dosed two or even three times a day. They just have sort of a short half-life. So, um, you know, there's no hard and fast rule, but I've, I have hundreds of patients taking melatonin Low dose naltrexone and ashwagandha in the evening. Same. All right. Just add one more point to that as well. It, I think it matters in this case how much melatonin you're taking. The studies, or at least the research that I've been reading recently, says that actually lower amounts of melatonin um, have a better action in the body. And the source of melatonin, so are you using more a herbal source or are you using a more of a um, a chemical source, um, melatonin. So this matters as well. And ask yourself why, why are you using the two together? Right. And also people may not know this, but there are a couple of dietary sources of melatonin cherries. So, um, natural organic cherries is a good option and pistachios. I think if you compare all foods, pistachios have the highest degree of melatonin in a food. So sometimes a handful of pistachios and maybe one or two cherries in the evening may uh, you know, lower your pill burden. You won't have to take as many pills. We're all supposed to not eat late at night. I mean, right before bedtime, no? Well, not a big meal, but um, like a little right before you go to bed snack. I mean, well, I'm talking like a handful of uh, pistachios. Okay, that's nice to hear. Um, anytime. All right. Uh, here's a good question. Are adaptogens, this is from Rumble, are adaptogens safe to take as one gets older, especially if they have arthritis? Yeah, again, in moderation. Um, I, I don't think there's an age cutoff for adaptogenic herbs. And I think if you look at some of the blue zones all over the world, you'll see that people uh, maintain certain levels of activity, eat very clean, use selective herbals as part of their daily daily regimen. Um, what do you have to say, uh, Christina, about that? I mean, 100%. Uh, yes. So it's a multifaceted approach. Yes, you can use adaptogens in the right context and in the right um, presentation, but also look at all those other factors. It's so we had a question. You were talking earlier about uh, dry eyes, and Wendy wants to know what adaptogen can be used for dry eyes and to help an unhealthy liver and kidneys. Hmm. I, mean, I, use, <laughs> I use other things than uh, adaptogens for dry eyes, but 
I'll let you handle that one. Yeah, I, I would I would as well in that in that kind of case. I mean, a, a, the adaptogen they're amazing, but it's not a it's not a, a one shoe fits all scenario. You have to look at all the other things. I mean, for dry eyes, I start to look at things like: Are you getting enough essential fatty acids in your diet? Um, that's a really that's one of my first ones. So I'll look at dietary sources. What's happening as far as just that your oral water balance? Are you hydrated? So this is a really big, big thing that we see. I see with a lot of patients is hydration. People think, oh, I drink a lot of water anyways. It's just, I'm fine. It's not, are you holding onto the water? Cellularly, are you holding onto the water? Um, so those would be sort of my first places to look at before even putting in tablets and pills. Mm -hmm. I'm going to end on this one from Teresa Badek. And this is part uh, Paul's territory of late. He has been, he did a massive study on looking at treatments for cancer. And um, here's her question. If you have a history of breast cancer, should you avoid ashwagandha and maca as they may increase DHEA or just monitor? Are there any contraindications related to cancer? Are there any specific adaptogens for cancer prevention or immune boosting to help with cancer? Yeah, so uh, I'll answer it and then my colleagues can. So in fact, uh, uh, ashwagandha has anti-tumor properties you know, of itself. So it's actually used to treat cancer. So the answer is absolutely yes. There's no reason not to take ashwagandha uh, if, you, if you're being treated for cancer. Would you agree? 100%. Yeah, good point. And then uh, a lot of the medicinal mushrooms like turkey tail, I have some cancer protocols I use that I administer four capsules of turkey tail twice a day along with low-dose naltrexone and some other things like berberine and metformin in a cocktail uh, post-breast cancer so to reduce the recurrence of breast cancer, and also use pretty high doses of melatonin in the evenings. Never use melatonin in the morning. Just always a, um, a chronopharmacology. You always use melatonin in the evenings. But that's a combination of ad adaptogenic um, mushrooms that are used in cancer uh, protocols. And just remember, not all maca's the same, okay? Not all maca's alike. There are 13 different phenotypes. So really, really important that you're using the right one in the right context. Well, thank you, Paul and JP and Christina um, for your breadth of knowledge here and uh, and all of the work that you're doing. Um, there's It's such a big, 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 big uh, category that, I think we're going to have to have this again. We're going to have to talk a lot more about adaptogens um, because we only just touched the beginning of it. There's, there's no way. Um, and we happily can tell our viewers uh, as we thank you that they can learn more by getting uh, information. First of all, from us folks, we want you to know we have a brand new guide to share with you and your family and your friends so that you all can have this good information on hand when you need it. The title, Adaptogens and Your Health. You can find it now on our website under the Tools and Guides tab or at the link on your screen. And of course, you can go even deeper into this topic with Dr. Salibi's book, 
Wonder Herbs, A Guide to Three Adaptogens. It's available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle, so you can make sure to get a copy there. And it's a guide to three, but of course, he's talking about many more, so we'll, we'll have to talk about this again. Um, but good, good, good information. Now, folks, uh, next week, we move into the space of food, or rather, sometimes trickier aspects of food. Next Tuesday's FLCCC Twitter space will again feature Dr. Christina Carmen, as well as our own Christina Maros, a CRNA, and will focus on how to read food labels. So join us Tuesday, October the 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern for a discussion and Q&A session all about nutrition labels, hidden ingredients, and many, many sneaky names for sugar, and so much more that it would be very good for you to know. Uh, you can use the link on screen to set up a notification for the space or keep an eye out on our social channels this coming week for more information. And next week's webinar, the very next day, we will have that webinar on food addiction. I will be joined by Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Joan Ifland as we dive into this important topic. So make sure you don't miss it next week, same time, same place. Now then, the one and only Dr. Bean has shared yet another incredible episode of Long Story Short with us. And in this one, he discusses a first of its kind study from Taiwan that demonstrates mitochondrial damage in cardiac cells when they are presented with the S1 part of the spike protein. Make sure to catch this on our website, flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean, or on our Rumble and Odyssey channels. And if you're anybody who has heart issues or family history of heart issues, you want to watch this. Now, Jenna McCarthy, you know, we know you feel it too, all of you out there. There's, there's a craziness in medicine and messaging and just about everything right now that doesn't seem to be stopping. And writer Jenna McCarthy has another darkly hilarious edition of Here's a thought in which she ponders what, if anything, public officials could possibly do to win back our trust. Uh, yeah, you can read it now on our FLCCC Alliance Substack and make sure to subscribe or use the link on the slide. So with all of that, let's bring our nurses in who have been talking to you uh, with good information and, um, well, Maybe lots of questions, maybe more questions than you felt you could handle. Christina Maros, who does these guides for us, and Samantha Hanks. I mean, we've got good people here. What, what was it like tonight being behind the screen? Well, we had a lot of questions, didn't we, Samantha? <laughs> Were you able to answer them? I mean, we got about half. There are a lot of adaptogen questions that, I mean, we don't have all the answers to those, but we have a new infographic that's posted on our website. And we're working on an adrenal health guide, uh, Christina Carmen and I are. So there'll be more information about all of these things. And um, I think we shared JP's book. So people can learn all they, they can about adaptogens then. And we're, we've got to do more, though. Clearly, we're not covering all the territory at, at, in one webinar. But thank you. Thank you for all that you are doing. You're here. I know you all do this voluntarily. You know, you're 
giving it your time for free and your expertise. We thank you. We are so grateful. And of course, folks out there, we have to thank you. You know, we we never can say it enough uh, to each and every one of you for being here tonight, for joining us in this truly incredible journey that we're all on, and for lifting us up and supporting us every step of the way. We could not do this without you. So thank you. We are especially grateful to all of you who share your stories with us. Keep, you know, keep doing it because these keep us going, hearing about your good results. So we leave you now with another story from one of you. 